I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 46, Mary and Mrs. Logan. Ugh, did you give me the intro on purpose? I had to say I Logan sure did. right off the bat. <laughs> I sure did. Guilty Chaos. as charged. Chaotic evil. <laughs> Sorry. There's like a lot less Logan than I thought would be in this book, though, by the title. Ugh, whatever. <laughs> Hi, Anne. Hey. <laughs> All right. Do you guys have your one sentence summaries? I do. Okay. Fantastic. Um, I'll go first. Mine is Marianne gets to meet her very favorite author and gains confidence through exposure therapy, but for some reason, Logan's name is still in the title of this book. Yeah, that's good. I took the opposite tact tactic. <laughs> Uh, Marianne whines about Logan, so I guess we're going to be subjected to his redemption arc now. <laughs> Very accurate. Mine is the title of this book should be called The Babysitter's Club versus The Toilet Monster. <laughs> I mean, I feel like The Toilet Monster gets way more play than Logan in this book. It's true. Right? <laughs> so much yes. play. Yeah. So okay. much play. Yes. I'm going to, in a reversal of events, do some feminist theory at you and then make you play a game. So get ready. Ooh, about the toilet Shut monster? Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Emily's never brought a game before. I'm so excited. Well, like, I don't know if you'll think it's a game, but <laughs> I think it's a game. <laughs> oh, such a tease. Such a tease. Okay. Well, don't get too excited. First, we need to back up and tell you about the members of this podcast. I'm Anna Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with the Sweet Tooth. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. <laughs> Been a little while. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, please check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. You can now rate us on Spotify if that's where you listen. They don't have reviews, but you can give us a little five-star click. If you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC-related, drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. And uh, team, we have a lot of new patrons to thank since the last oh, time we've done a patron pizza toast. It's very excited. We have all those portrait collection episodes. It's been a little while since we've recorded a regular episode. So hopefully I get everybody's name correct. Please let me know if I don't and I'll fix it because with a name like Esme, my name gets wrong a lot. So thank you to Hannah Emery, Tara Moran, Shana Robinson, Cynthia Baran, Brandy Walker, Deanna McMillan, Anuja Acharya. Ah, that's everybody. And everybody, thank you. Pizza toast to you all. Thank you, Pizza everyone. Toast to you. It's very exciting. People it's really very, like us. It's very exciting. And there's a lot of fun uh, chit chat over on our Patreon. So head on over there now. We're going to post a video soon of, or it may already be up by the time this happens, of me and Emily trying a bunch of Canadian candy and Anne's written thoughts about it. So check it out. Okay. So in this book, we have Marianne, who misses Logan. So. The plot of this story, this book, is Marianne, Mrs. Logan, and a quote-unquote plot, yes. Thank you. So the book <laughs> opens with Marianne basically pining away for Logan and wondering why they ever broke up in the first place, which is, it's because Logan was maybe a little bit too controlling. Mm-hmm. She was literally like, he he was smothering me, but now I, <laughs> I wanted a break, but I think I let the break go on too long. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, why do you miss him? Yeah. yeah. Wait, also, when did they break up? What, what number book did they break up in? 41, Marianne, Mrs. Lo- uh, Marianne versus Logan. Okay, so it's only been five books. Right, but what, what is time? What what be time? I don't know what five books is in the eternal eighth grade of the Babysitters Club. That could be, mm. you know, 
three three years. Like, is it still winter? Ah, uh, good question. It's uh, the season is unclear in this one. Yeah, it is. Wait, what about from the cover? No, there. Oh, you just unplugged yourself, maybe, Anne. <clears throat> Wait, they're roller skating. Yeah, the, this so this has the distinction of being one of my favorite Hodges Soilo paintings ever, but it doesn't happen in the book. I don't know. I don't know why they use this cover. I'm they very confused. Yeah, yeah. Why are they but roller skating? Isn't it, isn't it an adorable picture though? Is Stacy even in this book? Yeah. Oh yeah, she yeah. gets like not, She's barely in it. Yeah, she has she, like one mention in the chapter where they back up and tell everyone about the podcast like <laughs> it's yeah. like stacy has diabetes okay that's enough for her yeah, yeah. so interesting so okay married mrs logan uh she's pining away there's a big eighth grade school project which is a group project and they get put into random groups together and somehow marianne gets Paired with Logan, Pete Black, mm-hmm. and who was it before? Miranda Schilliber. Miranda Schilliber. One of the twins that the she Schilliber and Christy twins. used to sit with yeah. in seventh grade. But then Koki finagles herself into their group. And, and Miranda, Miranda bails. abandons Marianne. Yeah. Because yeah, like, she hates he's... Pete Black. Yeah. 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 Oh, because Pete Black like snapped her bra and broke it. Mm-hmm. which i was thinking Not- about that so he broke it and then she had to carry it in her bag all day mm-hmm. then you d- you're just braless the entire day and i was thinking how like weird that would be well, yeah. uh, this is not a defensive Pete, but we don't know. It, it seems like that happened a little while ago. So she may not have like necessarily really needed, like, needed the bra. Like it may yeah. have not been that uncomfortable other than the social uncomfortableness. I see. Not like my ample bosom, which right. needs a lot of support. <laughs> so through doing the book project, Marianne and Logan kind of have this tension. Uh, Logan, or Koki tries to woo Logan. And they go out on a lot of dates. A lot. Yeah. Like so many. I'm like, how long did they date? Because it seems like they went out every night. Yeah. As an eighth grader. As an eighth grader. <laughs> yeah. So then like Marianne and Pete Black do the project alone because they're like, fuck Logan and Koki. But then Marianne starts to worry about Logan being embarrassed. And then Logan reaches out to her and is like, hey, like, can I just go over what you guys, I know you guys have been working on it. Can I go over what you've done and show you what I've done? And she's like, what? You did something? Oh, my God. I love you again. (laughs) What a low bar. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's that's on page 96. (laughs) Wait, we should call Logan low bar. (laughs) Oh, low bar, Bruno. (laughs) All right. Yeah, well, because it's it's both of their one of their favorite authors, right? This this fictional yeah. Megan Reinhardt, both Logan and Marianne really like him. And Pete has this whole redemption arc from this like sexual harasser who broke Miranda's bra and who says that Megan Reinhardt's books are for girls at the beginning of the project to actually doing all the work and working really hard on it. Yeah, and it's like, whoa, these books are great. Yeah, Pete yeah. Black d- doesn't turn out so bad in this book. Yeah. He starts off real hot, though. I was like, mm, like, like coming out of the gate in a douchebag kind of way. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's no gaslighter. He's just out there with his, you know, 13 year old boy antics that we've already discussed were socially acceptable in the 80s. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's like what where's the where's the true evil? Like, that's just what he was socialized to do. Right. And then he and then he learns. And then he learns. Yeah. yeah. Which is and, more than we can say. for Yeah. Logan. And then, but then we have the real, the a plot of the book, yeah. which is the toilet monster. Well, before we even get to the toilet monster, we were all very confused by who the heck these these kids are, the Cormans. Oh yeah, Delaney's right. just disappeared. The Delaney's disappear in the the main mm-hmm. arc of books. Like which... in like the first time they introduce the kids, she's like in the Delaney's old house, and I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Where did they go? <laughs> so Mr. Google tells me that in Karen's Goodbye. Why is Google a mister? I don't. Fair enough. This sentient being that's going to take over the world that has no gender. Google tells me that in the Little Sister book, 
Karen's goodbye, that's when the Delaney's move away. Oh. But we're just supposed to know this as, you know, sophisticated 10-year-olds who don't read Little Sister, who only read the real series. How are we supposed to know that the Delaney's left? I didn't realize the timelines were intertwined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they're like gone. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Do we know why the Delaney's left? No, I didn't read that book. I'm sure many of our listeners know, but I never, I never read a Little Sister book. Do you want to guess why, Anne? <laughs> I'm guessing I'm gonna, he got... I'm going to guess your guess is something sinister, like <laughs> Mr. Delaney got went to prison for committing fraud or something. Insider trading. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I was going to, I was just going to say maybe they were very rich. They had that very fancy house with the fountain in the house. Mm-hmm. I was, mm-hmm. maybe he just got a very high paying job, like in another country or something. That's what mm-hmm. I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Like China, they moved to China. Mm-hmm. Or he's good. in jail. So really the only two possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> My my problem with the Corman kids is that I don't think their three names go together, and I don't think the same parents would choose the three names. Did anybody else notice this? Of course not. <laughs> so the two girls, the younger Corman kids, Melody is seven, and then Skylar's like a toddler, right? She's like eighteen mm-hmm. months old, and the, but the older brother's name is Bill. Like it just doesn't. I don't feel like it's Bill. It's a family name. <laughs> His name is probably William. Yeah. I mean, I guess people do that with, they give boys like a more traditional name and they give girls more interesting, unique names, theoretically. But like, it just, Bill sounds like a, you know, it sounds like one of the dads. And then it's like this nine-year-old boy. I don't know. I guess we knew a Bill growing up who went by Bill. It still just stuck out to me. Oh, I feel like Don is kind of a B a couple times. So we can get into that later. Well, there were two instances where she, they're both towards Claudia too, because Claudia says beef burgignon. And then like Don laughs at her. And then Don. I mean, in in her defense, it's pretty hilarious. (laughs) Not how it's pronounced. Of course. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then the other time, oh, Claudia says, or that person who wrote Little Women, and Don goes, Louisa May Alcott, she's been dead for ages. We're going to be studying live authors. Oh, yeah. I was like, geez, Don, little, know it all. How else is Claudia supposed to know that she got it wrong? (laughs) This conversation is so meta. I love it so much. (laughs) Just leave Claudia alone. I never correct Anne, okay? <laughs> only only when you channel Don and you shit on Claudia. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, there's a lot of psychology in this book. Do you guys want me to jump in? Yeah, do it. Okay, I'm going to do... There's so many things. Rather than do a deep dive on one thing, I'm going to do, like, little chunks on a bunch of different stuff. So cool. there's... I would say the theme of the book is anxiety. <laughs> Like well, more broadly, it's a Marianne book. <laughs> yeah, and we have Marianne's anxiety in a couple different ways, and we have the Corman kids' anxiety, some of which is kind of developmentally normative, and some of which may not be. So, <clears throat> let me talk about Marianne first. There's a couple different back and forths about her worrying, and how like she's sort of a champion worrier, and she's really good at coming up with things to worry about. And there's a thing about how she misses because Logan would tell her not to worry. Um, and there's a part where she and Christy are on the phone and Christy says, stop worrying about it. That's not doing anything. Um, and worry is actually a really interesting psychological construct because people who are plagued by worry generally feel like there's not anything they could do about it. It's very uncontrollable and just something that happens. But what we know about worry, one of the cognitive theories of worry is that it's actually an avoidance strategy. So basically when you engage with worries, You're giving yourself a cognitive task to do that takes your mind off of the uncomfortable physiological experience of anxiety. So Mm. you sort of engage in the like, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if that happens? It gives your brain something to do so that you're not paying as much attention to like 
your tension and your heartbeat increasing or the feeling in the pit of your stomach and all of the other things that people really don't like about anxiety. And there's, you know, there's trait level worry. Like some people just tend to be bigger worriers than others where it doesn't rise to the level of, say, a diagnosis that gets in the way of your everyday life. Or the main anxiety disorder associated with uncontrollable worry is what's called generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD. So a lot of people use the term GAD to just mean like a generally anxious person because that's what it sounds like. But it's actually the main feature of GAD is worry that happens all the time and the person tries to control it and can't. That's like the central sy- symptom. So it's like the worrying disorder. It's just like interesting <laughs> that Marianne was very much like, I just I just need to do this. And like she's got a bunch of people around her telling her basically just stop it, which is I think represents people with like low trait levels of worry versus Marianne, who I don't think has GAD, but has high trait levels of worry when she's Mm -hmm. under stress. That's the direction she's going to go. What were Mm -hmm. you laughing at, Emily? No, just like, uh uh-oh. Yeah. That's uh, yikes for me. Yeah. I mean, I know, I I think that I'm pretty low on trait levels of worry. And I know that, Anne, you're pretty high on trait levels of worry. When things are stressful, you tend to, you tend to engage in a lot of worry. Yeah. I don't, I worry situationally, but I, I think I'm better at not distracting from anxiety with worry and I'm just anxious, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is different, right? I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And are you the opposite? Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say I do. I'm more like a zero to a hundred person. So it's like, I would say like 95% of the time I'm not an anxious person at all but like if i get triggered i just go from like zero to a hundred there's like no in between for me there's not like i don't get anxious about day-to-day things Mm -hmm. um it's like i i I have yet to like figure out what actually triggers um my anxiety like of course there are things that will are obvious like mm-hmm. stressful things in my life but mm-hmm. like the commonality of like what that is um i don't i haven't quite figured out i do think though that you like when you get triggered worry is a big feature yeah and then like other times you're not worrying a lot yeah I, well that's the thing i don't understand yet right yeah Well, and I think we see that a little bit with Marianne. Like, I would argue, we've talked before about, does Marianne have social anxiety or is she just shy? I would argue that Marianne doesn't actually worry a ton about day-to-day stuff. She's sensitive, but she's not sort of stopped from doing the things that she needs to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But when there's a stressful event, like having to interact with Logan and Koki, having to... Well, the thing we didn't say is that then they have to make a presentation in front of the whole school and actually meet Megan Reinhardt because she visits the school at the end of the book. Those kinds of things spike her anxiety. The other thing that Marianne says in this very early in the book on page 11, when she's talking about all of the good qualities of Logan, she says, he doesn't believe that the best way to conquer fears is to meet them face to face. Maybe that works for some people, but not for Marianne Spear, which I thought was really funny. Because he doesn't believe or he believes? Yeah, he doesn't believe. Like he lets her, basically he lets her avoid things that cause her fear <laughs> like, uh, uh, is how I read it, I see, I see. Um, okay. which makes sense that Marianne would like that, but is just, you know, patently false. Like if we know anything in clinical psychology, it's that exposure is what treats anxiety and that mm-hmm. avoidance makes anxiety worse over time. Yeah. Um, and in fact, even in this book, she feels better and proud of herself for making this presentation in front of the whole school, a thing that she didn't think that she could do, that she was really scared to do. Not not true. You do need to face your fears if you want to. Now, do you have to conquer all your fears? Of course not. But if it's getting in the way of your life and your other goals, the way to do it is through exposure to those things, not mm-hmm. continued avoidance, which increases anxiety. So what nice try, pandemics? Anna Martin. Huh? I'm just kidding. What'd you say? What about pandemics? Yeah, pandemic. I don't know. I don't know what pandemics do. (laughs) It's just none of us do. This is. We'll never be afraid of another pandemic again because we've had so much exposure to a pandemic. (laughs) No. Now we're crossing over from phobias to trauma, and it's Mm. slightly different. Anyway, let's talk about monsters. (laughs) Monsters. Okay. So the Corman kids, specifically Bill and Melody, are nine and seven 
And they are spooked, more generally speaking, by moving into this big old scary house of the Delaney's. Right. Sounds like they were not so rich before, maybe. Um, and so they start noticing various monsters that live in their house. Um, the chief among them, the toilet monster. And the rules of the toilet monster. What are the rules, you guys? How do you stay away from the toilet monster? Um, you have to make it to your bed by the time the toilet finishes flushing. That is correct, Emily. I had some vague memories of, of this when I was reading that child in chapter nine, when they were talking about that, I was like, I feel like maybe I did that for a while as a kid after this mm-hmm. book. And you're nodding. Do you feel like you had some rules like that? No, but I, I had like some monster fears. Yeah. Like under the bed in the closet. Mm-hmm. So you do, mm-hmm. I feel like you just make up rules. Right. If I do this magical thing, yeah. then the monster won't yes. get me. Yeah. Yes. I don't remember having those. Is this part of just you not remembering anything about your childhood or do you think? No, I mean, I remember playing like games about monsters, but I don't remember having genuine fears about them or like doing things when other people weren't around, Mm -hmm. you know, like playing the monster game when I was by myself or Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Oh, I definitely did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I definitely had to have the covers in like a certain way or Mm -hmm. like, you know, not look mm. at the mirror in the dark in the bathroom so the Bloody Mary didn't come and stuff like that. <laughs> like, yeah. So um, so there's actually a lot of studies on child development and monster fears and imagination and found a few different studies. So, so this is super developmentally normative. You know, we're all talking about having some experiences like that. Bill's a little on the old side. He would probably be done with this stuff by nine, but maybe not because he's spending a lot of time with his younger sister. Melody's like at the prime age for these kinds of things. Well, and she also we... seems more scared than he does. Yeah, totally. Like, like he's, he's kind of teasing bit... her with it. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little bit on the edge and he can get sucked into it, but then also can kind of pull out of it a little bit. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a great point. So um, basically one thing that developmental psychologists study is like, how do kids soothe themselves? How do they manage fears over time? And there's kind of two different kinds of strategies. One are called reality affirmation strategies, which is like toilet monsters aren't real, right? This is, this is just a game. But younger kids are more likely to use what are called positive pretense strategies, like the toilet monster is keeping us safe mm-hmm. or the toilet monster doesn't like people that visit the house, but it likes the kids that live in the house. Mm. And so like making up an additional pretend thing or the toilet monster won't get you as long as you get in bed before the toilet finishes flushing. Mm-hmm. That's a positive pretense strategy, whereas I have nothing to worry about. Toilet monsters don't exist is a reality affirmation strategy. And younger kids, like five, six, seven, respond better and are more likely to use positive pretense strategies. Like, let's check and look for the monster. And we'll, we'll, the, was it Dawn that like had the flashlight with red on it and the goggles and everything when they went on a monster hunt? I think maybe it was, well, who babysits for them? Like, was Marianne. Dawn, I think Claudia and Christy yeah. all babysit for them, right? Yeah. Everyone except Stacy, who does and not. Stacy's not in this book. She's I'm not telling you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Dawn that, you know, gets them suited up for the monster hunt and goes and finds them. So that's a positive pretense. Well, also, she said they needed to find a flashlight with red on it. Uh-huh. And I was like, that's a bold statement because, like, you do not know if you were going to find that flashlight. But they did. I mean,. There's a fountain in the house. Yes, that's they true. have multicolored flashlights. <laughs> Don likes to live on the edge. Yes. Yeah, Don creates another monster. If we don't find the red flashlight, yeah. the positive pretense of the toilet monster goes away. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I found, so that was a study from Seifan and Lagutata in 2009. So what children know about managing fears of real and imaginary creatures. And then there's a study in Turkey in 2018 by Aysen Gundogan. I apologize for the um, name mispronunciation since I don't speak Turkish. called Oh No Monster, Do Imaginative Fears Trigger Creative Imagination? G is a little softer. Oh, thank you. Gündoğan, like Gündoğan. Yeah. Okay. And how would you, how do you know that? Um, it's has a similar a suffix to the president of Turkey. It's uh, pronounced Erdogan. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Thank you. Guess. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Emily's so worldly. Anyway, um, so this was a study that wanted to know if kids who had more creative fears also were more creative more broadly. 
So if they had more imagination, like if it's linked to just kids who are more imaginative or more likely to have more imaginative fears and vice versa. They just did one like cognitive test, though, where they took shapes and made drawings out of them. So it seems a little bit fishy to me to say that that's definitively says that more creative fears equal more creativity. What I did it love suggests about this, that they might. Right, exactly. Just barely, though, even. Even the methods, <laughs> I feel like, just barely suggest that it might. But what I liked about this study is I learned about something called the Koala Fear Questionnaire. And we'll... Uh, throw a picture of this up on our Instagram at some point this week. I don't know if you guys can see those little koala faces there, but this is how they assess fear in younger kids and preschoolers. So there's like a happy koala that says no fear up to like a really stressed out koala that looks like it's having a panic attack (laughs) that says a lot of fear. And kids like gauge different situations of how much fear they would feel. So Based on their affinity with one or other of the koalas in that yes, moment. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like my own emotions would be easier to gauge if I had little pictures of koalas. <laughs> okay, but I have to. I have an issue with these koalas. That's yes. not their ears don't look like that. Yeah, I don't know why they have like bat ears. Yeah. I mean, koala ears are fuzzy, so maybe that's just trying to show fuzziness. Don't like it. <laughs> Anyway, the last thing I'll say about the monsters is Christy's strategy that she's, uh, you know, quite, she she admits she's bragging. She's quite pleased with herself about. It's also the first time we see Christy contemplating, rather than being a teacher, being a child psychologist, which is just more evidence that I'm a Christy y'all because I also wanted to be a teacher and then changed to being a child psychologist. Very exciting. At 13 in your seventh, eighth grade? <laughs> no, but at 19, it's not that much later. Anyway. I was excited. But she just does a lot of what we would call universalizing or normalizing, right? So she she goes to the Cormans and she tells a bunch of stories from, like, the different monsters that her mom and her brothers and herself and other people she's known. Used to be scared of. Used to be scared of. And she gets the Cormans laughing and she, like teaches them that like what basically without saying this directly because they're younger kids like this is normal this is a thing that kids do Mm -hmm. and like the thing that you have is scary because it's scary to you but like what was her mom's called the fur thing Mm -hmm. the furry (laughs) thing I think I I think it's just just fur yeah the fur thing yeah my mom wasn't even sure what it was it was just a thing that was furry Yeah, that's where I got furry And from. what did the fur thing do? It ran out from under the bed and screamed at her. <laughs> it's so good. So funny. <laughs> so, that. Um, so that aspect of normalizing is important kind of across clinical psychology. Even, you know, a lot of times what's really hard for people with a particular set of symptoms is feeling like they're uniquely broken or they're going some, through something that nobody else has gone through. Right. And so even with a diagnosis of, you know, something serious like schizophrenia, like, hey, this is something that we've seen before and this is a pattern and other people have had delusions and hallucinations and have been able to manage it and live a effective life, you know, and just this isn't just you. Because I think it's a very human sort of existential fear to think that you're all on your own with whatever it is. And we can see like mm. a early version of that with the Cormans here. So nice. I liked that. I liked that chapter as well. Um, monsters galore. Emily, you I got know. anything about monsters? Yeah. Well, I didn't, I'm sick of talking about Logan. So I was like, Ugh, what? Up? and kind of TBH eighth grade, eighth grade boys, but maybe we'll come, come back. <laughs> maybe it'll come back in, <laughs> in vogue for me at some point. But I was thinking about, Let, let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about how, there's like a huge area or like subset or kind of intersection with gender studies, feminist and queer and kind of gender studies more broadly interest in the figure of the monster and both in like, and there's so many different interdisciplinary ways that that gets taken up, right? Like there's literary studies, there's like the kind of sci-fi speculative fiction. There's a whole area of kind of monster studies that's around ethics, which I think is really fascinating, but like, Mm. Loosely, the field is kind of established through the recognition that often the figure of the monster in some sense represents gender, some sort of gender transgression. So like the the traditional monsters like werewolves and vampires, there's a ton of stuff on how this gets treated in kind of like the medieval era. So like the werewolf is often rendered as sort of queer, right? It's like a, a kind of 
hybrid embodying two species within one person, mm-hmm. which was like an early way that um, homosexuality was configured, right? As like the the um, uh, invert, right? You're supposed to be, uh, uh, what it means to be man is to be directed toward, have desire that's directed toward women and men who desire men are inverted. And so they're, there's something kind of like, they're, they have a woman's desire mm-hmm. inside of a man's body. Mm-hmm. And so the werewolf as a kind of do as, as occupying both species represents that, that sort of transgressive desire and like that, um, you know, insurmountable kind of boundary between the species that's, that's taboo, right. Or, or other, or, and that's the thing that's monstrous, right. That it transgresses those, those norms and rules. And then like vampire is a kind of obvious one. And that, right. That, that, that a lot of their, a lot of what's scary about vampires is sexualized, right. That the, the drawing of blood and these are sort of seen as both taboo practices, but um, also that vampires aren't, they're often not rendered as, um, what we would now think of as heteronormative, right? That they're sometimes a little feminized, but often women are the sort of victims of them, even when women themselves are are vampires or, or when vampires are coded as as feminine. But then there's like a, a kind of shift too in the 80s and 90s where vampirism comes to like resonate with fear about HIV and AIDS, right? That this this like disease that's transgress that's transmiss through the blood and often in a sexual encounter, right? That that's kind of like how vampirism is transferred. And then like, which of course is like the classic example, right? That like, witches are either women who are, they're, they're generally historically represented as um, overly feminine, kind of sexualized and they're scary because they um, uh, seduce men and then like cast spells on them or they're like desexualized, they're rendered ugly, abhorrent, and they're scary because they eat children or whatever, right? And in all cases, these are all kinds of forms of of gender transgression. And there's like a lot, so those are like the classic examples, but there's a lot Mm -hmm. of kind of stuff about this in the figure of the cyborg and sort of speculative fiction, a lot of stuff about this. There's like a whole new collection of essays coming out all the time about like monsters and the Anthropocene and like future oriented kind of ethical considerations, right? Like how do we think about developing concern for others non-human others non like Mm. others so like the monster is this like huge figure in gender studies which i think is really interesting so i thought it'd be funny to think about like if we were going to read gender transgression into the monsters in (laughs) this book like what is the toilet monster and what makes the toilet monster what renders the toilet monster a like gender failure (laughs) oh man This is my version of a game. Okay. So Anne and I have to understand in what ways the toilet monster is a gender failure. Or just guess. Like, I don't okay. know. What what way could the toilet monster be gendered? And what does the toilet monster reveal about the kind of the scope of gender and the like universe of the BSC is the other is the question. <laughs> what kind of if the toilet monster were real what would be scary about it is another way of thinking about it like imagine a real toilet monster in this book not just a fear that the children have i feel like emily's game is a lot harder than the games you come up with Anne. no it's not (laughs) (laughs) all right the the first part's silly like just imagine what, what what could a possible toilet monster if it were real in this book do or be or look like oh like what is the threat of the toilet monster yeah okay Anne, you go first. What would a toilet monster do? A toilet monster? Well, physically, it would, you know, it'd be like the mouth would be like the seat. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like right? it would like, like, try to bite you? Yeah, it would try to bite you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then it would probably try to like throw up waste uh, onto you. So I think there's something about like you pee or poop into the toilet and then mm-hmm. is there something weird there where it's like, I don't know, some. Well, does the toilet only, does a toilet monster only eat you when you're sitting on it? And well, then exactly. like the part of you that it's eating is both your, your genitals and your like, um, you know, what's the system that digestive system. <laughs> okay. Like, I was about to Big say, quiet, what's yeah. the system where you digest things? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's the divestive system? Divestive system, yes. I think that also works. (laughs) Divestive audio. (laughs) Right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, okay, so boys, you know, I mean, 
Oh, right. Traditionally stand up standing. when they pee. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, and girls have to sit down. So it's like a, there. so for boys, it's like a phallic castration. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of, yeah. right. It's trying to get them from the front. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, some boys choose to sit down and mm-hmm. that would be acting like a woman. And so then yeah. you would get the punishment that women are supposed to get mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. from the toilet monster for having that, that gender transgression for acting too much like a woman near the toilet. Yeah. we did it that's it i mean but i love this notion that the toilet monster also expels waste like there's something about like i don't know there's something about how we treat the earth up in there well yeah i think that that's true i also feel like there's like a a, you know there's a I don't feel like this. There's obviously a vulnerability to using the yes. toilet, right? Yes. <laughs> Your pants are down. So it's like you can you can definitely go very Freudian on this if you want to in terms of what why a monster would attack you in that position. But I, you know, I know people have like I know people that have fears about like a spider, you know, getting you when you sit on the toilet or something else coming back out of the toilet, you know. So I think even the idea that it would like expel even just water but particularly waste at you while you're sitting on the toilet is like gross right so you're in this Mm -hmm. vulnerable position and it could get you in a in a more subtle way than banging Mm -hmm. and eating eating you in the way that Mm -hmm. ann described yeah because if you were the toilet you won't you wouldn't want to be the toilet so like (laughs) (laughs) i'm thinking from the toilet's point of view why he's angry why the monster's the angry monster is like the toilet monster's reaction to its its victims is that it doesn't like being a toilet monster yeah it's just <laughs> like, it's like cognitive process it's like i don't want people shitting and peeing into me anymore i'm sick of it oh okay so he the toilet monster is actually like going on strike he's like the toilet monster shit. represents mother nature's rebellion against humans mm. like Human waste. Of its environment. Yeah. Human waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Guys, you did great at this game. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's it's you. You mentioned. I mean, I'm sure our listeners feel this way, and Anne. I don't know if you feel this way too, but Emily, you mentioned like twelve different ways in which monsters are used, like from like more old school queer and feminist writings to like futurism stuff like it's just really interesting to me that that continues to come up and continues to be used as a metaphor in so many different places it seems like you could have talked about any one of those for a really long time and you gave us kind of the the 101 overview i'm wondering if you have a a, like a favorite or a thing that you find particularly interesting among all of those pieces that you want to say a little more about or why you like one of them Yeah, I mean, I really like the figure of the cyborg in feminist theory is one of my favorites, because it's kind of this notion that like, in classic kind of humans versus robots sci-fi, right, like robots demarcate the like, two things. One is like the fear of humans having lost some humanity and becoming too much machine, and then the machine takes over and humanity is kind of lost, right? But there's this way that that sort of reifies the kind of primacy of the human against non-human others, and to some extent negates the way that like we've always been sort of part machine, right? Through the tools that we use to kind of cultivate our life's necessities, right? Like Mm. to feed ourselves, to clothe ourselves to seek shelter that like in part we've always been a little both human and machine right and so that the kind Mm. of feminist the way that that gets taken up in sort of feminist ethics is that like if we recognize that the cyborg is not creation of the human kind of that's gone out of our control and and represents the limit of kind of human mastery over nature but is in fact like part of the human experience then that kind of changes our other orientation and like how we mm. might conceive of ethical orientation toward others. So the cyborg gets taken up a lot in kind of like both feminist science studies and kind of like eco-criticism, right? The, and there's this whole debate around like, is technology going to doom us or is it going to save us? And the kind of feminist, you know, ego tech perspective is like neither, right? It's not that it's cut and dry. Yeah. yeah, it's a synthesis to, to speak in the um, dialectic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I, I think that's interesting too. And and you see like Frankenstein is a little bit of a cyborgian character, right? Mm-hmm. And like that, the theme there is about, is less about like what the monster, what kind of threat the monster represents to the human and more like 
how the human is a threat to the monster, right? That mm-hmm. like the monster is this sort of outgrowth of of the human and is like becoming human in all these interesting ways and yet read as this mm-hmm. um, terrifying object, <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't deserve to live or doesn't deserve to exist or doesn't deserve to be cared for. So yeah, I think yeah. my favorite is a, is a figure of the cyborg. That's really interesting. Anne is um, waving a picture of Frankenstein from her movie Monsters book, which I think is probably a good segue to her. Yes, Anne. Anyway. <laughs> so I was... So, so did you guys not like this? Do you want me to only talk about how much I hate Logan? No, no, no. no well, awesome. you know, I was yeah. thinking, what if Logan is the monster? Oh. Wow. He does seem to be part machine. I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to back up that that thesis. I'm just going to take it as self. Or maybe the toilet monster is Logan. Oh boy! Yeah. I wasn't trying to go too Freudian with that analysis. I was trying <laughs> to be like, what what would the things that the toilet monster does represent to us? Yes, like, I appreciate. I saw it. Yeah. I saw you. Okay. I appreciate okay. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I and was help. very afraid of monsters. <laughs> I was very afraid of monsters when I was a kid. But I think it's because my brother made me afraid of monsters. And he had, it was actually this book. It's called Movie Monsters that he called the monster book. And he could get me to do anything if he was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get out the monster book if you don't do this. And so he, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. What Was it just like looking at the book? scary or was it like the monsters were going to emerge from the book and do something to you like how how fantastical is this this well, ploy so my brother also dressed up as the wolfman one day after i came home from school and he like he like put cotton balls all over his face and like used my mom's makeup and like wore like a flannel like and he made himself really big and like it scared the shit out of me. I think part of it is like the feeling of being chased by something, like something was gonna get you, was very was very terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, I was like, you know, I was like five or six, so it's like if something was, if someone told me you're supposed to be scared of this, it's just like I was just like, oh, this is were, bad. I was, right. you know, like it was a threat. You know, I have some dim memories of the monster book from your house from a couple years mm-hmm. later. And I remember just even the pictures being scary because it's also it's like it, it's, it also shows like how they make people into the monsters. Right. Yeah. Like, well, it's actually like makeup sections. Yeah. Well, it's actually pretty wholesome. The book. It's right. It, it goes through like, you know, kind of the famous monsters, Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein and then in in the back it has yeah but it's like how as kids you could become these monsters so it shows you like for example like this is how you can become Frankenstein you know and it's very wholesome but I I never knew that you know when I was a kid it was just like the monster book is gonna get you so funny I know but I feel like it like I don't like scary movies to this day yeah. I don't I like either. I don't like the feeling of tension I'm the type of person who like if I'm watching a suspenseful movie I have to read what happens mm-hmm. before so I don't feel the mm-hmm. the stress. worry and, and stress Worried. yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> which Micah does not understand that he's like how do you spoil things for yourself and I, I was like I don't well there was that study a couple years ago I forget what but basically that people who have spoilers actually enjoy entertainment more than people that don't. Oh, it really? Actually increases your enjoyment of the thing if you already know what's going to happen. Hmm. Yeah. That's probably why <laughs> I reread stuff so much. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, not a ton of pop culture. There were all the authors, which mm-hmm. we decided that who were the two authors that were, or there's three authors that are fake. The... Yeah, the ones that actually visit the school. Yeah. So Megan yeah, Reinhardt. would pretty bold if she was like, Madeline Langell came to start yeah, the I know, school. I know. <laughs> but I, I do like that Claudia's was like Daniel Steele and Stephen King. I thought that was very cool. She's very a, sophisticated. Very sophisticated. <laughs> but I liked that those were Claudia's 
picks and hopes. I could actually see those being a really natural uh, progression for her from Nancy Drew. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. I thought yeah. I, I enjoyed that. We had also talked a little bit about how if Anna Martin had written this book or not, and she did. Mm-hmm. And I think a giveaway was the Wizard of Oz throw in there. <laughs> and I was like, Jesus, like. Wait, I missed it this time. When did the Wizard of Oz come up? It's on page 60. And it's when Marianne, oh, it's when Miranda left the group. Mm-hmm. And Marianne says, I thought of the Wicked Witch of the West in the movie The Wizard of Oz. Oh, what oh, a right. world, what a world. She had murmured as she died. <laughs> right. So bleak. <laughs> I know. So I was like, oh, of course. Um, yeah. I also uh, thought, like, at the end when they get to meet Megan Reinhardt after they've done the presentation and she comes right over to Marianne who was like obviously shy and obviously struggling with the presentation. Mm-hmm. Like that was very much a like Anna Martin coming over to talk to herself yeah. moment. Yeah. So I'm proud of like Marianne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was cute. But the thing I just want to do a little bit on is Purchisey because the Cormans play Purchisey. They have like a Purchisey tournament. And I was like, kids don't play Purchisey. <laughs> That's also like Anna Martin Rumor giveaway. Kids do. I know. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is what Anna Martin played. But like, it's the early 90s. Kids are not playing Purchisey, especially like multiple rounds of Purchisey. I don't think I've ever played Purchisey, actually. I don't even know what it is or how to play it. I just know that I've heard it referenced a lot in yeah. in the Babysitter's yeah. Club. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, Anne and I were big into board games in 1991 and we were not playing yeah. cheesy. Yeah, I yeah. don't know that I've ever played it either. So I just did like a quick little internet search of the history of Purchisey and it's it's kind of interesting. So uh, it's like an ancient game from India um, and it was uh, the first... Um, known play of it was in the like the mid 1500s oh, um, wow. emperor A- emperor akbar Almost so in his reign the vampire i'm kidding yeah exactly so it was the game is called i'm not sure for sure if i'm pronouncing this correctly it's uh, pachisi p-a-c-h-i-s-i um and it was basically a game that it's like the board game of Purchase, it's like a cross and like a circle type of game and you have to get to the middle. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> he played it. He had a giant um, board of it. It was his royal court. And it was like the tiles were like in the shape of the game board. And he used the young girls in his harem as game pieces. So oh. they would like oh, move no. around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's upsetting. So, but he liked the game so much that he like built in a court, playing court in every palace, and et cetera, and it just kind of gained popularity. So, you know, fast forward, um, like under British rule, the game, you know, kind of made its way to, you know, the West, the West through Europe to the US. And in 1870, um, this company called Selchow and Ryder bought the rights to Purchasey. Um, they, they just changed the name a little bit. Um, and it kind of gained popularity. Selchow and Ryder also had the rights to Scrabble. Mm. Um, and some other games, Anagram. Um, yeah. Our Scrabble board, the one that we grew up playing at my house, is the Selchow and Ryder version. And Okay. Yeah. So um, so basically, the game became very popular, but um, it was they had the name Purchasey. So other people kind of basically borrowed the rules and the play of the game. So like, I think Milton Bradley's game was called Game of India. Hmm. Um, but also there's like very like modern games like the game sorry and trouble are also modeled after the same kind of rules and play i was gonna ask you because i just googled parcheesi game board to look at when yeah this looks like sorry and trouble so sorry and trouble are the most popular sorry with my yeah are the popular examples of kind of parcheesi but like there's a ton of games that kind of borrowed the same kind of 
gameplay. That's so interesting. Yeah. So I was like, huh. Little fun fact for Parcheesi. Um, also, I learned just through, uh, like, Hasbro had the right to, have the right to the gray Milton Bradley, but Hasbro owns Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers, and a bunch of other, like, gaming things. And it's because Hasbro, Hasbro Brothers, they, like, were able to, they made Mr. Potato Head. Um, mm-hmm. They got into toys, and they actually were... Uh, Disney licensed Hasbro to make their toys. Mm-hmm. So that's wow. how they got so much richer. Cause these other like Milton Bradley and Parker brothers were just game gaming, like game boards. Right. But Hasbro, yeah, but Hasbro yeah. got into toys and right. They just made a bunch more money and like basically acquired everyone. Damn. So yeah. Among other things. Capitalism. But, yeah. Yeah. Kenner also. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm surprised by how many themes we were able to hit in this episode. I know. (laughs) It's good to be back in the saddle, gals. I'm like, this is like a very classic, classic stuck in Stony Brook mess around. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mess around. Oh, man. Um, Claudia didn't have any candy, did she, Ian? No, because there weren't really any. There was like one meeting in the beginning, um, but there was like barely any supporting character. It was really all Marianne. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Logan. Marianne's saga and Pete Black's redemption arc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right, Tally's, uh, because it's a Marianne group, we see the return of babyish and baby. So there's a couple of those. We haven't had that in a little while. Um, the thing I was very excited to see return is that Jesse tells jokes. We did mm. get Jesse telling a couple jokes. Yes. So, and jokes. loves to tell jokes. So that was very exciting. Um, I was happy to see that. Uh, so that's a one on that three individuals for Dawn, one health food, two sophisticateds, one exotic and one almond shape. We're still seeing exotic in mid 1991 people. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yikes, 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 yikes. Yeah. Speaking of Jesse jokes, did any of you find them funny? <laughs> I was just so happy they were there. I don't know that I can sort the difference between being happy that Jesse is being given a characteristic other than being black and the oldest daughter um, mm-hmm. <laughs> versus uh, the enjoying the actual joke. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's a fine line. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to note was when Marianne was describing all her friends, all the characters, she kind of talks about how every, like, Claudia is gorgeous, Dawn is pretty, and... And then when she gets to Mallory, she says, um, she's describing Jesse and Mallory. They don't like a thing alike. Mal, who thinks she isn't pretty, is white with red hair and freckles. But she does nothing to be like, she isn't pretty, this, yeah, but she's actually, you know, yeah. it's just like, yeah, she isn't. Yeah. Oops. Oops, oops, oops. Isn't. I thought that was more used to say something about Mal's opinion of herself than to, but I see what you're saying. She could have added a, I think she is. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I noticed actually that, that I may need to start keeping a tally on that I have not seen previously other than when Stacy was getting sick prior to Stacy's emergency. There are a few times that Stacy was described as like looking thin lately in, mm-hmm. uh, in a sentence where she was not doing well. But this book has both Dawn and Stacy described as being thin, which is, which is new, which we don't, I know some listeners have commented about this kind of trend on Instagram, but we actually haven't seen that much in the book so far. So I'm a little worried that that is going to continue well, going in the forward. 90s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's one that I think I should probably start paying attention to. And before we get to Weirdest Lions, is, did any of you feel bad for Koki? Because I feel like Logan pretty much used her. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think Marianne feels bad for her too, right? She's like, I, she's like, it seems like Koki's being really mean to me, but I think she just really likes Logan, and I understand that. Like, I, you know, I have mm-hmm. a crush on him too, and like, I think Marianne's very, I mean, it's mean to like let her embarrass herself like that. It sucks for her, but. I, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of like sympathy for. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not buying it. Um, I, I don't. I don't really have an opinion about her. With like Logan was single, like it's totally her right to like ask him out and spend time with him. And I do feel bad that like Logan just like drops her. 
Like yeah. that part I feel mm-hmm. bad about. I don't feel bad about anything having to do with the assignment. She made it very clear that she was disinterested. Mm-hmm. She was not going to do the work. She was like not trying to read the books. And oh, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, not the assignment and should have been yeah. like, here, no. I wrote your essay for you. So you don't embarrass yourself. But I think right. there is like an extent to which Marianne's like, I think her behavior is motivated for different reasons than what I thought before. Right. Like before right. I thought she was this like malicious mean person. And now I think she's like doing all this, stuff because she's not very good at reading and she really likes Logan and like right. those, those two things together have account for her behavior and that's like true more, it, this more is, sympathy for her this is definitely sense. the more nuanced version of Koki that yeah. we've seen mm-hmm. like I think she has only been written as a, a complete Bad, villain before mean, and yeah. now she's like kind of pathetic mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's just like I was like trying to imagine you have a crush on this boy for years and then mm-hmm. he goes out with you like a lot. And then well, it's only eighth grade. And so it can only be a few months, but it's also years. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then the next thing you know, he's back with his, his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh man. She's such a goody two shoes and so shy. I know. <sighs> She's not fun at all. What does she see? In, what does he see in her? <laughs> Harsh as me. <laughs> I'm just saying from Koki's perspective. No, I don't think anyway. that was from Koki's perspective. I think that was from your <laughs> perspective. Koki's perspective. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Weirdest lines, fave lines. What do you guys got? Well, we have two classic like kids mi- mixing up words. There's the Claudia Berging non, and there's also Tawabunga. Is that mm-hmm. what Skylar says? Yeah. Yeah. Tawa Bumpa Dude. Tawa yeah. Bumpa Dude. Yeah. yeah. Which I very much like. <laughs> Me too. That was on my list also. <laughs> yeah. This is, I mean, I think this is another way that we can tell it's an Anna Martin book is that there's a lot more weird lines. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I was writing a ton of things down. Um, I won't read them all, but just like, it was really good. Like, <laughs> So I also had Tawa Bumpa Dude written down. I also liked the punchline of one of Jesse's jokes, Purina Boy Chow. (laughs) That's very good. Yeah. And then one that I really liked that is too long for an episode title was when their principal is talking right at the beginning of the assembly. And Marianne says, Mr. Cambridge became a bit wordy. Around royalty, he would probably be reduced to speaking nonsense. Whereas turnarounds are hallowed halls do seek for the greater imperious notions of sanctified nations. Blither, blither, blither. Yeah, that's very good. I liked that one yeah. a lot. <laughs> I had I had all those same ones. Plus, I I have when Marianne says a Ferrari, maybe, which <laughs> 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 was. What like, is that even about? I don't know. I have it down on page fifty. That she said it on page fifty six, but I don't see it on. Oh, here it is. It says. How could the administration of SMS do this to me? They owed me something. A Ferrari, maybe. So funny. <laughs> I think I like Purina Boy Chow the best. <laughs> I, feel I think like that really fits. Episode title. Yeah, yeah it, it, it goes, goes well, well with, with the it. monsters. Yeah, and with Logan and Pete. And yeah. Okay. Purina Boy okay. Chow it is. Um, what should we pizza toast to? The Toilet Monster. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We haven't given them enough credit. <laughs> and you're like, yep, exactly. I'm right on board with it. Well, that. not so much the toilet monster, but I feel like our critical theory of oh, the toilet monster. Okay. Our specific. The, the toilet monster come to life, not just as a figment of these children's imaginations. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So can the you. real toilet monster. Make that catchy as me. What are we pizza toasting to? Punch it up. Punch it up. <laughs> <laughs> Pizza toast to the Ichikawa Crandall Schaller exegesis of the real toilet monster. Yeah, to cool. The toilet Pizza monster. toast. <laughs> <laughs> to the toilet monster. <laughs> this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Christine Arabal of Wander Creatives. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. You can also join us on Patreon for bonus content at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook.
need some books that we mentioned, buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling deeply generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.